Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. Still the home office edition, and as you see, I'm a little bit rusty um, because it's been a while. On today's podcast, we are going to talk about early access slash expanded access, and I have two incredible guests today. One is Komal Nigam, and one is Tina Velter. So before we jump on that, pretty interesting topic. Please, both of you introduce yourself. And as we agreed on, Komal, you start. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here to talk about this issue. My name is Komal Nigam. I'm a senior associate in the FDA Pharmaceuticals and Biotechnology Group, uh, based in the Hogan Lovells, Washington, D.C. office. My practice is primarily focused on helping companies develop and implement regulatory pathways to approval uh, by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. And I've represented clients in matters ranging from preclinical development through drug approval to post-marketing compliance. And of particular relevance to this discussion, I've advised companies on human subjects research issues including institutional review board and informed consent compliance and questions about expanded access, which is our topic for today. So again, happy to be here. Hello, everyone. My name is Tina Welter. I'm a senior associate with Hogan Lovett, Germany. Like Komal, I am a dedicated lawyer for the life sciences industry. So solely working for pharmaceutical companies, medical device companies, and other kinds of healthcare service providers. My work spans from regulatory questions throughout the life cycle of products, um, commercial contracting, as well as compliance work. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you today about expanded access and early access. Um, so thank you for having me. Welcome both. And actually, I need to make a correction because it's not the full home of sedition because Tina's in the office. <laughs> so, she cheated um before we uh, dive into it i think we need to establish somewhat of a baseline so can one of you or both of you say okay what is actually uh, when we talk about early access expanded access what is that and what is the goal of this process sure i can i can jump in from from the u.s uh, food and drug administration perspective in the U.S., expanded access is the use of an investigational new drug, one that has not been approved by FDA to treat a patient outside of the clinical trial process. And, you know, we, I refer to it as expanded access. That's how the agency generally refers to it. But it's also known as compassionate use, pre-approval access, or early access. And so, you know, the general idea is that in the U.S., if a pharmaceutical company seeks to study a drug in humans, it generally needs to submit an investigational new drug application to FDA to allow it to do so. But that whole process is extremely tightly regulated, and so only patients in those trials are permitted to use that investigational drug. And so the intent of expanded access is really to allow broader access to the investigational product while it's still being studied in clinical trials. And, you know, there are obviously some regulatory guidelines that FDA has provided to explain when and how that will be allowed. Obviously. Because... Maybe not so obvious, but... Uh... 
Um, I have a I have a follow up, but before I have I ask my follow up question, is there any difference of it in in Europe slash Germany? So from the situation we want to cover, it's quite similar or it is similar. With regards to terminology, it is different because we would rather use the term early access and we would just, with this term, use it as an overall term for the several regimes and possibilities we have established already in EU law and then uh, further regulated in the national laws in the EU. A follow-up question on this. So uh, when you say, okay, the early access is granted parallel to the ongoing clinical trial, um, the data that was generated through early access, is this data actually feeding into the clinical trial itself or is this completely separated to each other or is this optional? So the data from expanded access programs can be used uh, as part of an approval package. However, there's There's really a fundamental difference between the purposes of an expanded access program and a clinical trial. So the purpose of a clinical trial is, is to advance the general knowledge about the drug. It's, it's not intended necessarily, although obviously the hope is that it would benefit an individual patient, but the intent is really different from the expanded access program. There, in the expanded access program, the intent is to diagnose or monitor or help treat a patient where the patient is not otherwise eligible to participate in the clinical trial program. And there are other situations as well uh, where an expanded access program might be relevant. So, you know, if, if the drug has been discontinued or is not being studied anymore, but may have benefit for particular patients, or the drug is in shortage and there's a similar drug approved. So again, it's really... The, the main difference is the purpose of the two pathways. And, and just let me add on to that. While, you know, it may be preferable to have all patients in clinical trials because they are really closely monitored in a clinical trial, it's a really controlled environment, there are some reasons why it will not be possible for all patients, right? It could be, you know, simply access if you're far away, you know, if the clinical trial is only conducted in the US, but not in the EU. But the population of a clinical trial is, you know, it's determined by the pharmaceutical company at the beginning of the clinical trial. So it may not be possible to enroll all patients in the clinical trial. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, there's still the need to treat his patients somehow. So now as we established the baseline and kind of marked down why early access and um, expanded access Or there is demand for early access and expanded access. Uh, what is the pathway in the US? So there are three types of expanded access that appear in FDA's regulations. There's individual patients, which can include both non-emergency and emergency use. And we can talk about the difference there. Second, there is an intermediate-sized patient population, which we typically think of as involving maybe 10 to 100 patients. And then there are treatment INDs or treatment protocols, which we would think of as encompassing hundreds to maybe thousands of patients. And then for each category of expanded access, so in individual, intermediate, and treatment, there are two ways that you can get that not approved per se, but that you can proceed. So there's 
an expanded access protocol where you submit an amendment to an existing investigational new drug, or you can have a new IND submission. And the difference between those is that the expanded access protocol is typically when the company itself is the one sponsoring the expanded access program. And the new IND submission is typically used when the company is not the sponsor and and the sponsor investigator may be, for example, the, the treating physician. And so for each of these categories, the regulations sort of specify different types of information that you need. And there are also differences in terms of the time you have to wait to start treatment. So, you know, for example, for individual patients and intermediate expanded access INDs, you have to wait 30 days from submitting to FDA before you can actually start the treatment. And for individual and intermediate expanded access protocols submitted to an existing IND, you don't have to wait the 30 days. And then, it, you know, as I mentioned before, there, the FDA distinguishes between emergency and non-emergency expanded access. So that's, that's sort of the general overview of the structure. You know, some additional points are that you still need institutional review board or ethics approval, and you need informed consent. So that's kind of the basic structure of how the submissions work. And then in terms of what, what is actually evaluated by the agency, there are certain criteria that you must meet. So the patient must have a serious or immediately life-threatening disease or condition. There can't be other therapies available. And the benefits to the patient have to, be justif- have to justify the potential risks. Because again, we're talking about a product that hasn't been approved or evaluated by FDA. And there's this idea of not wanting to interfere with clinical investigations. So, you know, the patient can't be otherwise eligible for a trial. So that may have been too much information, but I just wanted to make sure that we all, <laughs> that we're all on the same page on, on how it works in, in the U.S. And I'd be really interested to, to hear how that differs from, from the process in the, in the EU and the pathway in the EU. You know, I listen to you and I think it's, it sounds really complicating to me. Really, it sounds sounds really complicated to me, and yeah, and you know, and now I'm going. This is coming from a German. You need to understand. (laughs) This is pretty intense. (laughs) But but let's see what you're going to say. So early access, if we think of it as something the pharmaceutical company can establish, there is the program that we are calling the compassionate use program which is actually already regulated or established as a process in one of the EU regulations we have. But it's the provision itself is not, let's say, it doesn't suffice to cover it, right? So each EU country has implemented this process in their national laws. And while, you know, if you coming as a US company into Europe or even you know, as a um, European company and you want to establish a compassionate use program in the EU, you need to take into consideration that it will be different to some extent in each of the EU countries as procedures are different and things like that. But let me start from the top. The compassionate use program, as I said, is something that is usually established by a pharmaceutical company, at least in Germany as the requirements for the submission are so high that only the company who really has the knowledge about the drug can actually do it. 
And with a compassionate use program, you want to uh, you know, make the drug available for a group of patients. patients. These patients, they have to suffer from a serious, really serious or life-threatening disease. There cannot be any other treatment possibility. The drug cannot be authorized anywhere in the EU or in the European economic area already because otherwise you wouldn't need a compassionate use program anymore. And then um, the drug you know, needs to uh, either be subject to a submission for marketing authorization, either on the European level or in Germany or somewhere else in the EU, or it um, is already studied in a clinical trial in the EU or in the European economic area, or if it is not even, you know, there's not even a clinical trial in the EU, it needs, uh, there needs to be a clinical trial in the country which follows ICH GCP guidance, so meaning good clinical practices. And those are the requirements. They are assessed, you know, pretty rigorously by the authority. You need to submit, as I've said, extensive documentation, and then they are going to review it and let you know, you know, there's not a Let's say there's not a formal approval. There's also no approval of the ethics committee, but they acknowledge the receipt and let you know that everything is okay. Otherwise, they would ask back, and then you can actually start. These programs, they are then allowed in Germany for one year, and after one year, you have to resubmit and you know discuss because you would think that the marketing authorization, clinical trial, or whatever is you know has come to an end or that the truck is, you know, close to authorization or is already authorized. It can actually be provided in a compassionate use program in Germany until the product is launched. So this is, this is the compassionate use program, but we also have some other regimes that we can use which are not established by the pharmaceutical company anymore. They can only be involved to some extent. I mean, just going to raise these, you know, to just have them mentioned. There is the emergency supply, which concerns a product which is not authorized anywhere in the world, just in a clinical trial. It's a really, let's say, unusual situation, but, you know, we currently see it. So we, we currently have a case covering such situation. It basically means that you are providing a drug which has not been authorized anywhere in the world to a patient, you are by doing so, and it sounds pretty serious, serious saying it that way, that, that this way, by doing so, you are violating criminal law as uh, providing such truck is sanctioned by criminal law in Germany. But as it, it is the last resort of the patient, you can say that you are justified doing so. So you would refer to the actual justification that we have established in criminal law to provide this product to the patient. Um, there's, no, there's, no, there's no authority really competent for that. So it's a little bit delicate handling it. But as said, it's not something that you do really, really often. But you know, as said, we're talking about the disease here, which is really serious, and the patient is probably going to die if you don't do it. So it's really serious. And then another scheme is the named patient import, which we use if the drug 
has already been authorized uh, somewhere. It, it is actually a, a pathway that is quite often used in Germany. You can use it if the truck is authorized even but not available. So it's quite common to do it. Um, it is done under the responsibility of the pharmacy, which then has to import the product into Germany from somewhere in the world. It is, and there's a big difference. This name patient import is not meant to treat a group of patients. So if you would consider to, to treat a group of patients, you cannot really do it under this name patient import because it would be considered the convention of the compassionate use program. How complicated does this sound? <laughs> but um, from, from my perspective, but it still seems that um, pharma companies are thinking a lot about entering the European market first before they apply for um, access to the US, right? In which way? That what is they the think, situation? Okay, if, we, if we can run um, or just be part of the early access program or start clinical trial, just the hurdles are a bit lower than over here than in the US. Maybe it's the wrong question, but I felt like we had a couple of discussions where I said, okay, um, the experience is that people are trying to enter the European market first before they head overseas and apply. Not sure. Not sure. Yeah, no. I'm not sure either. You know, I, I feel like I've had clients on both sides of that where they will try either either FDA first and then move to the European markets or or they'll be have been in Europe for a long time and then eventually apply to FDA. I think I think it probably depends mm -hmm. um, on a lot of factors. But but it is it is interesting sort of what you raise. I, I feel like what what I may not have touched on as much earlier when I was speaking is that the companies have a lot of control over this. And it sounds like in the EU the companies have entire control almost over this, but they have the right to decline these requests. There's no, nothing in U.S. law or regulations that would require a company to provide um, an expanded access program. And the only thing recently that has changed in the U.S. is that they are required to post publicly what their expanded access policy is. So if they are going to, you know, not have expanded access programs, they need to say that. Um, and have that be publicly available. That was part of the 21st Century Cures Act requirements. That's, that's really interesting. Yes, I agree with you. There's no, you know, there's no obligation for a pharmaceutical company to do it. I would say that, or I say that most of our clients feel the need to help as there is a patient need. So they would, you know, they would rather do it if there's a legal way to do it and a safe way to do it, they would rather do it than not doing it. It's really complicated talking about early access in Europe because a pharmaceutical company cannot advertise prescription-only medicinal products to uh, laypersons. In addition, there's also the prohibition to promote medicinal products that are not yet authorized under EU law already and then already uh, then of course um, also in the national laws and we have a really broad understanding of what promotion is so uh, basically everything a pharmaceutical company says that is intended to generate sales also future sales 
is uh, already considered a product promotional. So, and, and this makes talking about early access really complicated when we are referring you know, to really compassionate use program compassionate use programs that have, have been you know, recognized by the authorities, they are publicly available. So there's a website from the uh, German authorities where you can actually look it up. Usually our clients see that you know, when they uh, published, let's say, promising phase two, phase three clinical trial data, and we are talking about serious disease, um, the patients, they will become aware of that. They're really well informed and they will address the pharmaceutical company. They will say, okay, look, we, we saw these, this data. This is my disease. What, what can I do to really get the drug? As said, if the drug is authorized, you could you know, cautiously refer them to a pharmacy because mm -hmm. you are also not allowed to promote um, this named uh, patient import, you cannot, you can also not promote that. Um, so you can really, you know, cautiously refer them to a pharmacy and say, look, the, if the product is already authorized somewhere, you can get it from them. And otherwise, you know, you can um, then assess if you want to do the emergency supply I was talking about. Otherwise, and if these requests, you know, if you re receive several of these requests, you may, you know, think about establishing a compassionate use program. From my perspective, if you really know as a pharmaceutical company that there's a need for your product, you should already consider this. You know, if you, as you move forward in the uh, development of the truck, I think you should already consider it because this is an investigational truck. So there's not huge quantities of the truck actually available because usually only manufacturers for clinical trial and not for commercial use. So this is something you should, you know, take into consideration and plan for. It's certainly a complicated set of considerations for, for a pharmaceutical company. And I think a lot of it stems from, you know, the concern that, especially where rare diseases are concerned, the concern that patients might be eligible ultimately for a clinical trial or that it will interfere in some way with the legitimate gathering of, of information for a clinical trial. So it's, it's complicated. And, and, you know, we recently had in 2018, a, a law enacted called the federal right to try law. It's related, but, but not directly to expanded access. It, it essentially put in place certain provisions to try to provide patients another, another way to access these investigational drugs. You know, for example, it took away liability for the manufacturer sponsor. It took away certain liability for, for physicians who use these investigational drugs. But ultimately, it doesn't require companies to provide access. And, and so it's, it's very similar to the expanded access program in that way. I, I have a question maybe for Kumal, because something that I, I would be, you know, as you talked about, pathways and the differences that there are in in um, in the US what is actually the difference between an emergency and a non-emergency situation because I think of early access mostly as emergency situation so emergency versus non-emergency use is is interesting because as you say it sounds like they need they 
that any situation in which an individual needs an expanded access um, needs expanded access to a drug would be an emergency. And I think I think FDA just considers an emergency situation to be a situation that in the treating physician's eyes requires a patient to be treated before a written submission could be made. And so that that treatment then would be requested and authorized by a quicker means than a written submission. So for example, by by phone or perhaps by email. And and once FDA authorizes that immediate sort of treatment, the physician can go ahead. Now there are still certain parameters that you need to you need to follow. So you have to follow up with the written submission within 15 days of the initial authorization. But I think it it's it's really for those extreme situations where the, the treatment needs to begin immediately. Is there a difference between like national and federal law? So are there states that are more like open or is this just national law guided through FDA and there is no breakdown on specific federal jurisdiction? Yeah, so this is this is federal law. FDA, you know, FDA's jurisdiction is is federal. Now, I mentioned federal right to try law that was passed in 2018, but there were a set there was a set of state right to try laws that had attempted to get at the same uh, idea. So there were a number yeah, of sorry, state... state law and federal law. I just always get it. <laughs> get it. Sorry. No, yeah. that's it's it's it is it is confusing with the comparison to the EU. <laughs> so I, I understand. Um, but yes, some states did have their own right to try laws, um, and the federal right to try law was really a an effort to make it make it a more federal uniform system. The, the podcast is named Talking the Cure, but kind of some of its charm is like talking out of the box and just give a little bit of kind of stuff, what's going on behind the scenes, stuff you have seen. Um, and maybe you can, um, before we end this, talk a bit about your personal experience. And if there was um, a case that you found incredibly interesting because there was a high urgency there was an interesting client a patient case or whatever and you can obviously anonymize it but um, maybe there's something you can you can talk about to kind of paint paint a picture for the listeners as i said a lot of these expanded access programs are initiated by treating physicians and it's it's less common for companies to be involved. However, when, when it does come up, one of the interesting questions that has come up is, when do you terminate an expanded access program? When do you stop it? Because there are cases where, for example, another product in the treatment landscape has been approved. And then at that point, do you still say that there are no available therapies? Um, and you have to reevaluate you know, but then there may be patients who are who are having success on the drug and and want to continue, but but then are you legally allowed to do so? And there's the question when it overlaps with, as you say, an open label trial. So open label trials can ultimately come under a treatment IND or a treatment protocol 
if, for example, there's no more clinical data being assessed or, or pulled from that open label study, but but there are individual patients who want to continue on on the drug. So it's just an interesting question in the U.S. about where you do have these expanded access programs. What are the limits? What are what are um, how often do you need to reevaluate? And what do you do sort of ethically about patients who who may want to continue before the before the drug is approved? An interesting question under EULA, for example, is until when can you file for compassionate use program? In Germany, for example, it is only possible until you have not filed for a marketing authorization. And then, of course, the other question is for how long can you make the product available in the compassionate use program itself? Is it with marketing authorization? But usually, you know, if there's marketing authorization, it takes a couple of weeks, if not months, to actually launch the product. And we would think, and in, in Germany, you're actually allowed to cover this time already. Um, we even know that a client was able to provide product for a little bit longer, you know, to cover the time until when the doctor, um, you know, writes the re first regular prescription, so to say. So you can see it can get quite into detail uh, for the therapy and for the patient, and it has to be assessed for you know, each product every time. So, you know, early access is something that it, it is done, and it's, it's not that, let's say, exceptional, because usually you plan for it. Compassionate use programs, as I have mentioned, they require a lot of preparation, preparation time, as you need to, you know, submit a lot of documentation, and we supported in this documentation and in the whole process um, over the last couple of years. Something we we often see, of course, is uh, named patient import. We have really peculiar situations. The most important thing here is to understand the status of the truck. And how is it actually, you know, provided? What is the supply to make sure we're not circumventing uh, compassionate use? And of course, you know, the, the cases that really stuck with you that um, are the emergency supply cases. Um, if you, you know, we currently have a case where we're talking about a really specific cancer indication for patients uh, who from diagnosis on may only have three or four months left. So, you know, you really, you really need to feel, you really feel that you need to make it work. And of course, you know, you can only do it in the uh, framework that is legally provided. You know, usually these are the cases that really stick with you. In addition to your expertise here, um, could you give a, like a percentage of your work, how much do you actually work on like early access process? And is this kind of a daily, daily thing that's going on, going over your desk? Well, I, I often do it. It's, it's pretty common for us to advise on these things. And as said, the most important thing for us uh, to know where to start is to understand where the product actually stands in the process. Yeah, on on our side, we we have a really robust clinical trials sort of practice, and and we do advise on on expanded access policies for our 
our drug and our biotech companies. Uh, we also, you know, provide training for our clients on on the regulatory requirements related to expanded access policies. So we we have had sort of extensive contact with this with these provisions and and because we advise companies really from from start to finish through the approval process with FDA it it, it does come up for our clients. And you got pretty rough m 14 months with all the emergency <laughs> authorizations that's, that went down, right? <laughs> yes, that's that's a whole separate that's a whole separate thing, but Certainly, the last year and a half has been very active for yeah. our five pharma clients. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Tina and Komal, I'm going to link their bios in the description below. I think that was a super interesting episode to round this year up. I wish you all happy holidays and I hope you're going to enjoy some downtime with your families. We are back in the second week of January with a super interesting episode, so please look out for it. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast in your favorite channel where you listen to our podcast to. We're looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.